Good morning and welcome to Northway. Thank you guys so much for being here. It is such a joy uh, to get to gather and worship with you guys each and every week. So as we transition from worshiping through music to worshiping through the preaching of God's word, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter one. Uh, We're going to read this together and you can follow along in your copy of God's word or you can follow along on the screens behind me. Galatians chapter one, we'll begin in verse six and go through verse 10. This is what it says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge that you are the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. And God, we thank you that you saw it fit to reveal yourself to us through your inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. God, I thank you that through your word, we have clarity on what the gospel is and on what it is not. That in your word, we get to know who you are how to have a relationship with you and and how to live out your plan for our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with Pastor Kevin as he is an instrument for your truth, that you would give him clarity of thought. And Holy Spirit, I pray for the rest of us that as we sit under his teaching, we would have ears to hear and eyes to see that we might know you better, God. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you for being here in worship. Um, with us today, and let me go ahead and say Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Stephen will say more about this at the end of our service, but I want to begin with two things this morning. One is saying Happy Mother's Day, and secondly, to apologize now for the fact that I am not preaching about moms on Mother's Day. Uh, I will not preach on Proverbs 31 today. Uh, When I was in graduate school, my preaching professor said, that as a pastor, you can absolutely get away without preaching about dads on Father's Day. But God help the pastor who doesn't preach about moms on Mother's Day. So I would just want to go ahead and acknowledge the elephant in the room. That elephant is me not preaching about moms on Mother's Day. However, in my defense, I talked to my wife, Katie, who is a mom, the mom of our four kids, and said, look, I'm really excited about this series. I don't want to take a break to preach about moms. And she said, I want you to continue in this series. So she has given me permission to do this. If you're upset, blame her. (laughs) 
So with that fairly weak apology out of the way, as you can see, we are continuing our series today called A Different Gospel. Now, if you were here with us last week, you know that we are looking at a significant movement that has uh, taken many churches and many denominations by storm over the last several years. This movement has been labeled progressive Christianity. And last week we gave this definition to this term. It is a movement with historical Christian roots, yet differs in its views of the Bible, Christian doctrines, moral and social issues. And so last week we spent time talking about the differences in beliefs between progressive Christianity and historical Christianity. And if you missed that series last week or that sermon last week, I would invite you to go and listen to that so that you can have a foundation for this series. As you saw by this week's title, uh, you may have guessed, we are looking today not just at the dangers of progressive Christianity, but at the dangers of any gospel that is different than the gospel that we read about in Scripture. Throughout the history of the church, there have been those who have taught Uh, a different gospel. And throughout the history of the church, the church has responded to these heresies and said, no, that is not the gospel that Jesus gave us. One of those early different gospels uh, is what Paul addressed in the passage that Stephen read from earlier. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to a church in a region uh, called Galatia, what is modern day Turkey. Uh, Paul wrote this letter sometime around 50 AD, and he wrote it in response to some disturbing news that had reached Paul's ears. Apparently, a group of teachers had traveled to churches in this region called Galatia, and there they had begun teaching this different gospel. These teachers were known as Judaizers. And the Judaizers believed and taught others that Christians needed to follow the Jewish law, that they were actually bound to what you and I would call the Old Testament and all the laws of the Old Testament. Not just the moral laws like the Ten Commandments, but all of the religious and ceremonial laws as well. They would say that in order to be saved, in order to be in right standing with God, individuals needed to practice all the Jewish customs, including circumcision, and to follow all the regulations of the Jewish faith. They essentially said that salvation involved a combination of grace through Jesus Christ and our own human effort in following these regulations. And so these Judaizers traveled to churches located throughout the Roman Empire. These churches that were mainly non-Jewish congregations. And they said to these congregations, it is good that you are following Jesus. However, that's not enough. You need to add to it. You need to also follow these customs and regulations as well. And Galatia was one of those churches where these Judaizers went and they taught this message and then word got to Paul, who was likely back in Israel at this point, 
that these teachers had invaded this church where Paul had gone and planted the church by preaching the gospel. And so Paul was quite naturally disturbed at this news. And so he wrote this letter. He began with usual greetings and then he quickly jumped into the reason for the letter. Look back at verse six. Paul wrote, I am astonished. We have this passage on your message map. If you want to underline or circle that word astonished, when we use that word in English, we use it like we would say surprised. So I was astonished that my kid actually made an A on the test. Or you might say, I was astonished that my team actually won the game. In the Greek, this word always had a negative connotation. We would translate it this way. I was shocked and dismayed. I was shocked and dismayed at this news that I heard. So what had Paul heard that had him disturbed, that had him shocked and dismayed? He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who, had call, who has called you to live in the grace of Christ. You can underline that word deserting. It is strong in the Greek language. It actually was a word that was used for politi political traitors or soldiers who abandoned their army to go and fight for the opposing army. Uh, it, it was a strong word, and Paul here says, you have become a traitor to the gospel that I gave to you. And then he goes on to say, and you are turning to a different gospel. Paul says, I am shocked that you have become a traitor to the true gospel, and you have turned to this different gospel. By the way, this is the verse that I lifted out the title of this series from. You may notice a different gospel. It came from this passage and from this verse. So why would Paul say, I am astonished that you have quickly deserted the gospel and you have turned to this different gospel? Here's a little background on why Paul wrote these words. In Acts 13, we read about Paul and his traveling companion named Barnabas going into this region called Galatia. They visited several cities and God gave them incredible success everywhere they went. Poseidon Antioch was one of those cities that Paul and Barnabas went into. There they preached the gospel. I want you to notice what happened when they went there. It said when the Gentiles, those are non-Jewish individuals, those were Roman um, citizens, part of the Greco-Roman culture. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread throughout that whole region. So see what happened here? These Gentiles, these non-Jews heard this message about a Jewish Messiah, but not just a Jewish Messiah who came as a savior for Israel, but one who died for the whole world. And they heard this message and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And then the word of God spread through that entire region. They embraced this gospel message. And then sometime later, the Judaizers came in. Don't you hate those guys? They just sound like rascals, right? The Judaizers. Paul plants this church. They are firmly grounded in the gospel. And then the Judaizers came in. 
And they began to teach this different gospel. Although Paul had taught them that salvation was clearly by faith and faith alone, they heard a different message. And keep in mind that these Galatians were baby Christians at this point. I don't mean that they were less committed. This is not a criticism of the Galatians. They were just new Christians. And so they were susceptible to bad theology, to bad teachings. They had not grown enough in their relationship with Christ to know how to rightly divide truth. And when these teachers came in with gospel-sounding words and things that maybe seemed right on the surface, they were vulnerable to these false teachings. If you were here with us last week, you saw us commission our seniors uh, as we prayed for them and sent them off. And Chris Wegman, our student pastor, did a great job of praying over these students. And you may have heard him mention as he talked about these seniors, the emphasis that we place on teaching the gospel to the next generation. And if right now you have children in our children's ministry, uh, if they are in that programming, I promise you they're not just coloring pictures on paper. We are teaching them the gospel. And our students who are meeting right now, we are reinforcing the gospel. Why? Because we understand that newer Christians, that younger Christians in the faith are vulnerable to false teaching. And that's what happened in the Galatian church. These Judaizers came in, they taught this false gospel. And so Paul addresses that. I am astonished that you have turned to this gospel. And then he clarifies himself. He says, you are turning to a different gospel, which in reality is no gospel at all. Paul says, you've turned to a different gospel, but let me just be clear. I don't want you to be confused in any way. When I call this a different gospel, I don't mean you have multiple gospels from which you can choose. If you like gospel A, go with gospel A. If you like gospel B, go with gospel B. Gospel C, go with gospel C. Paul says, no, that's not it. This different gospel in reality is no gospel at all. On your message map, I have listed four dangers of a different gospel. Here's number one. You can write this in. A different gospel creates false security. Paul makes it abundantly clear that while he referenced this as a different gospel, in reality, this was not a saving gospel. This was no gospel at all. Here's why. The word gospel literally translates as good news. This is the good news, that in Christ, you are completely forgiven. And you do not have to, nor can you add anything to that. You are as loved as you will ever be. You cannot sin so much that suddenly you are not in right standing with God. That that God's love for you has somehow changed. And no matter how much you have sinned in the past, if you have broken all 10 of the top 10 commandments, if you have violated just everything that there is, every rule on the book, the gospel is still offered to you. What Christ accomplished on the cross was completely sufficient to cover your sin. And you cannot add anything to that. The Judaizers, however, taught something different. That you need to add something to it. That there's the Jesus portion, 
and there's your portion, and those two together create your salvation. It, it was like the turning of the keys to launch a nuclear missile. Both keys have to turn at the same time for the missile to launch. The Judaizer said, both keys have to turn for you to be saved. Here's the problem with that teaching. Jesus always turns his key perfectly. Me, not so much. I miss it sometimes. And if I have to sit around and worry, well, did I do enough? Did I sin today? Did I sin so much that my salvation is now not secure? Or maybe I didn't sin a lot, but I didn't do the things I was supposed to do. I didn't follow the laws that I was supposed to follow. And I forgot about this one. And oh no, I worked and it's Sunday and I violated the Sabbath. And that's one of God's top 10. And maybe now I'm out. Maybe salvation doesn't apply to me anymore. Now Jesus, again, he got it right every time, but, but me, not so much. If that is the gospel I'm living by, I promise you that is not good news. That keeps me in fear all the time. Here's what Paul is driving at in this passage. Any teaching that either denies the full sufficiency of Christ for our salvation or elevates our part in making our salvation happen, any teaching that does either of those things is a false gospel. If you were here last week, we talked about one of the key beliefs of progressive Christians is that people are basically born good. That yeah, you make mistakes and, and your environment influences some decisions that you make, but basically you're born good and the way that you can achieve your own salvation is through following the example of Jesus and through moral living, through loving others well, then you can be saved. What is that doing? That is elevating your role, your goodness in salvation. Another key belief in progressive Christianity is that Jesus came as an example for us to follow, not as our Savior. That belief diminishes the role of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus in our salvation. Paul here says any quote gospel that does that is a false gospel. So what is the effect of that false gospel? What was the effect of the false gospel in Galatia? Look at verse 7. Paul wrote, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Notice what these Judaizers did. One, they threw the church into confusion. The church was disturbed. The church was confused. They were upset. Do we believe Paul? Do we believe these Judaizers who came in and they're teaching something different? Paul says they've thrown you into confusion because they have perverted the gospel. They have taken the gospel and they have twisted it in such a way that it is no longer the gospel at all. The great theologian John Stott said about this verse that these two things always go together. Whenever the gospel is twisted, then the church is thrown into confusion. You can see the second danger of a different gospel on your message map is this, that a different gospel throws Christians into confusion. If you were here last week, I mentioned that one of the reasons that I just decided to do this series 
is because I received a number of questions from individuals about what has been happening in the United Methodist Church. If you've kept up with the news or if you are here last week, you heard me explain that in the Methodist Church over the last decade, there has been this division in the church about abandoning the historical teachings of that denomination regarding same-sex marriage. And, and it has divided the church to the point that now that denomination has split over this issue. Several months ago, I was at Carlisle Place visiting with my dad and I got into the elevator there and I happened to get in with this gentleman and we, we talked on this very short elevator ride. Somehow we had a lot of conversation and I found out that he was a retired Methodist pastor. And I said, oh, well, I, I understand that your denomination right now is having a number of spirited discussions. And he said, yeah, that's exactly right. And he, with tears in his eyes, says, I want you to know that right now, my denomination is going through hell. And I have no idea on which side of the issue he stood, but his assessment was dead on. In fact, I think that's the one thing that all of those in that denomination could agree on. Regardless of which side of the issue they fell on, they would say, yes, our denomination has been thrown into confusion. In my opinion, here's why. Here's why anytime the gospel is twisted, a church is thrown into confusion. So what did Paul think about those who preach this different gospel? Look at verse 8. It's what Paul wrote. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. You can underline that word curse. We'll come back to that in just a minute. As we have already said, and now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. This is the strongest language that Paul uses, I think, in, in virtually all of his letters. His approach with the Galatian Christians was gentle. Strong language, but gentle. It, it was like a father yelling at his son as his young son is maybe running out into the street from the driveway. That father may yell and scream, but it's done out of love to protect that child. Paul dealt with the Galatian Christians like that. But with the Judaizers, he was just mad. I mean, he was angry at what they were teaching. And he pronounced a curse on anyone who tried to promote a gospel other than the gospel that he had received from Jesus and the gospel that the apostles had taught to others. That word curse there that I told you to underline, that word is the word from which we get our English word anathema. It is, it is some of the strongest language that Paul could have used. It literally meant doomed to destruction. In fact, the Good News translation of the Bible actually translates that verse this way. If anyone preaches to you a gospel that is different than the one you accepted, may he be condemned to hell. And Paul is so emphatic about this issue that he repeats this curse twice. He says it in verse 8, and it's like Paul writes out verse 8, and then he stops, and he anticipates the reaction that someone might have or the response that someone might have. 
He thinks, you know, they're going to think I'm just being facetious here. Oh, Paul's not really that dogmatic on the issue. Paul's just, you know, he's using hyperbole there. He really didn't mean, I mean, that's such strong language. He really didn't mean they're doomed to destruction. And then he writes verse 9. Anticipating that response, he reiterates his point and says, no, I want you to take my words literally. If anyone preaches a message other than the one true gospel, then they, they need to know that their soul is in danger. So here's the third point on your message map. You can write this in. A different gospel brings curses. Now, I get it. This, this is not a passage that fits well with our modern emphasis on love and tolerance. And there may be some of you in here right now, and you think this message is way too strong, that this sermon series is way too strong. I promise you, I'm just quoting Paul. And Paul's language is much stronger than my language. Why was Paul so emphatic about this? Was Paul just a narrow-minded fundamentalist? Was he just a grumpy guy who was just mad at the world? And that's why he wrote this? Why was Paul so concerned and so disturbed by this different gospel? It's because Paul had a commitment to what is true and what is not true. And he understood very well that this false gospel was leading people astray. I want you to think about it like this. Let's say that you learned about a doctor who was practicing bad medicine. This doctor was giving prescriptions that killed people. He was making bad diagnoses, diagnoses about patients. And you knew about this and you had the power to do something about it. What would be the most loving thing that you could do? To say something? To try to make sure this doctor did not do that anymore? Or would the most loving thing to be for you to say, well, Everybody has their own path for medicine. There are a lot of different paths that lead to the top. That doctor just chose a path that's a little different. That doctor, you know, he's got the right to his own opinion, really to each his own, and and that's all we need to worry about. What is a more loving thing to do? Paul would argue the most loving thing is to call somebody or address that doctor to stop him from harming people. And that was Paul's concern with the Judaizers. Paul did not have a personal beef with these individuals. In fact, you'll notice in that verse, Paul here hypothetically places himself under that, his own curse. Paul says, even if I preach a gospel different than the one that Jesus gave, then I would fall under this curse. He is saying, I don't have anything against them personally. But anybody that does this, if it's me, if it's my mama, if it's my own kid, if it's my best friend, it's not about the person, but it's about the message they are preaching. And if they preach a gospel that is different, then they are seriously in the wrong. And then you'll notice on there, he adds, even if an angel from heaven preaches this false gospel, that angel should be under this false curse. Paul does this because many times a false gospel gospel comes because somebody says, well, God told me this. Yeah, blame it on God. God gave you this vision. An angel from heaven came and gave me this vision. 
And here's the way that you really need to worship. Most often it's join my cult, join my church, give me money, and that's how you should worship. Why? Well, because an angel gave me this message. And Paul says, if it's different from the gospel, then even an angel falls under that curse. And then finally, verse 10. Notice how Paul closes this section out. It says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul here essentially asks two rhetorical questions. The first is, am I trying to please people? And evidently, there had been some accusations leveled against Paul that he was sort of a politician, that he would walk into a room and he could gauge the temperature of the crowd and he would preach in whichever direction the crowd was leaning to try to win the approval of the crowd, that he sort of knew which way the wind was blowing and he would preach in the direction of the wind just to get everyone happy with him. And Paul says, based on these words I just wrote, do you really think that I'm trying to please people? Again, it was a rhetorical question and the answer was a resounding no. And then the second question he asked was this, or am I trying to please God? Is my goal to do what the Lord wants me to do to win his approval and then to let the chips fall where they may? Again, it was a rhetorical question and Paul was clear here. I am doing my best to follow what God would have me to do. Now, if people like that, if they approve of what I am doing, then that's great. If they do not approve, well, so be it, but I'm not going to change my message just because people want me to change my message because they do not like that message. I'm not going to base the message that I preach, Paul was saying, on the opinions of others. So here's the last truth. This is on your message map. Write this in. A different gospel makes us slaves to man's opinions. Or here's another way that we could phrase this. A different gospel is not born out of the word of God. Rather, a different gospel is born out of man's opinions. Last week, I, I talked about the process that many churches and uh, denominations who are progressive Christians, the process that they have gone through in coming to their stance on same-sex marriage and other LGBTQ issues. And from what I've read, there have been none that I have seen that have said, we did a thorough study of Scripture, and we've come to the conclusion that we believe that the church has had it wrong for the last 2,000 years. And that's why we are making this change. All of the arguments I read went something like this. The culture around us has changed. And therefore, we need to change as well. Here's the problem with that. Our culture's morals, our culture's values will change again and again and again and again. And if you as a church want to base your beliefs on the values and opinions of culture, get ready because you're in for a wild ride. Because what is accepted today will be rejected tomorrow. What is rejected today will be accepted tomorrow. Some of you may know the name J. Gresham Machen. Uh, he was a famous theologian in Christian history. 
he was a professor of New Testament studies and theology at Princeton Seminary. And then when Princeton made a move toward liberal Christianity, he founded Westminster Seminary in Pennsylvania. Um, as a side note, uh, J. Gresham Machen, who was a famous figure in Christianity, was also the grandson of John J. Gresham, who was an attorney and prominent businessman here in Macon in the 17 and 1800s. J. Gresham had a house built on College Street, a very large home. He completed that home in 1842, and today we call that home the 1842 Inn. Uh, Some of you are familiar with that home. Some of you went and saw that home when Oprah was here several years ago, staying there while she was filming in Macon. Uh, John Gresham's grandson, uh, J. Gresham Machen, in the late 1800s, found himself in the middle of a great controversy uh, that Princeton Seminary and a number of other uh, major universities um, were a part of. These schools had all been founded on historical Christian teachings. But in the late 1800s, this um, new teaching began to sweep through our country. And I won't go into all the details of these teachings, but they basically de-emphasize the divinity of Christ and they de-emphasize the miracles of Jesus and the miracles of the Bible as a whole. They basically said, it is not palatable to those who are in academia to really believe all these miracles we, we read about in the Bible. I mean, is it really reasonable, they asked, to believe that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a great fish or that Moses parted the Red Sea? I mean, is it reasonable to believe in our natural world that that happened? It it just seemed too far-fetched to the university types, to a scientific mind. And they asked about Jesus. Did he really feed 5,000 people with just a few fish and loaves of bread? Did did he really walk on water? Or did it just appear to be that way to the disciples? Did he really raise someone from the dead? Did he actually heal these people? Were those miracles or did they just seem like miracles? And, And did he really die on the cross and then God raised him from the dead? Or maybe did he just appear dead on the cross? He fainted. And then a few days later, he showed up and he was not raised from the dead. God did not literally bring him back to life. He just appeared dead and then he started walking around again. And they began to ask all these questions and they said, we just cannot believe in those things. However, there's a lot in the Bible to appreciate. There are good morals. Jesus was a good example. He talked about loving one another. He told us that we should be concerned about orphans and widows and feeding the hungry and helping the poor. And so they said, what we want to do is to take out the miraculous, take out the divinity of Jesus. And what we would like to do is to adopt these other things that we see in scripture. And maybe if we can combine these things together, we can create this brand of Christianity that is more palatable to those in academics. Machen, who was a professor at Princeton, fought vigorously against these new teachings. And in his book entitled Christianity and Liberalism, he assessed this movement with these words. The chief modern rival of Christianity is liberalism. 
an examination of the teachings of liberalism in comparison with those of Christianity will show that at every point, the two movements are in direct opposition. Today, a hundred years later, more than a hundred years later, we are facing a very similar movement. Instead of being called liberal Christianity, this new movement's called progressive Christianity. However, it is really just liberal Christianity 2.0. Both have said, we need to change what we believe so that we can adapt to the culture around us. Hundred and something years ago, that change was to adapt to a scientific mind, to adapt to, a, to a, an academic culture that had a hard time believing in the supernatural. For progressive Christians, it's a change in our morals. It is a change in what we believe about marriage being between one man and one woman so that we match up with the values of culture. And they have said, we, we should adopt the values of culture, keep the part of Christianity that doesn't conflict with culture, relabel it progressive Christianity, and that will save Christianity because it will be more palatable to the culture around us. And I agree with what Machen said. What it does is it creates a brand of Christianity that doesn't look like historical Christianity at all. It is, at the end of, a, end of the day, a different gospel. Paul's words here force us to ask the question, are we trying to fit in with the culture? Are we trying to please God? That is a question that a church has to answer. That is a question that we as individuals have to ask and answer as well. Are we more concerned with the opinions of man are we concerned with pleasing God and letting the chips fall where they may?